Welcome to Emerging Franchise Brands, the podcast that introduces you to the visionary founders of America's fastest growing franchise opportunities. We'll also hear from industry pros as they share insights on what it really takes to achieve the elusive milestone of 100 plus locations. I am your host, Frank Fumi, founder of i9 Sports, and my 20-year journey from inception to acquisition has given me a unique perspective on how to succeed in franchising. Join me as we welcome today's guest. Today, we have a very special guest, Mr. Stan Friedman, a franchise industry expert and legend, somebody I've known for about 20 years. Stan has quite the background. He is currently the partner and president of FRM Solutions. He is also the executive producer and podcast host of Franchise Today. He is the co-founder and managing member of Zor Forum, and last but definitely not least, he is also the chairman of the National Buffalo Wing Hall of Flame. Stan, welcome to today's show. Who knew such a thing even existed, <laughs> right, Frank? <laughs> Who knew? Wow, we we went through like three minutes of the podcast just to go through all these. The, just saying the hello. Yeah, just say hello. How have you been? I'm living the dream, Frank. How about you? I'm living the dream as well. This is fantastic. It's so great to see you and to, uh, we could talk about war stories of franchising. We have so many different directions we can go. Let's talk about the the podcast first. I mean, you've been a a producer. You've been a host of Franchise Today now. Is it for 10 seasons? Yeah, the show is 14 seasons old. And it was originated by a another franchising guy that's been around for quite some time, Paul Segreto. And Paul produced that program with a couple of different people and then for a couple of years on his own. And then about 2013, I was doing a podcast that I called Sensible Franchising. And Paul and I kind of had a conversation with each other about how hard it is. You know, it's a labor of love. I love doing it, but it's like another full-time job. You have to secure guests you have to line up interviews you've got to produce the interviews and you've got to get them on the air and it's it's just a lot of work and so paul and i decided would it not make sense for each of us to partner together and have only half the load to lift and then the two of us can put out a product that we're both proud of and and not have it be so laborious and we did that together for a few years and then paul diverged from the franchisor side of the business to his business taking him into a role that featured more interaction and engagement with prospective franchisees. And so it didn't make a lot of sense for him to keep on with franchisor-based franchise today. And I took the reins and have been doing it solo now for probably six or seven years. That's awesome. Sounds like it's, it's, I mean, it's been a lot of fun, hasn't it? I love it. Frank, think about it. Where else can you go and have conversations with meaningful people who have accomplished things in the world of franchising and week after week. I mean, the audience gets a kick out of the opportunity to hear from these people. I get a real thrill out of the opportunity to talk with them. And what I do every week is exactly the same. It's, it's all about franchising being an unintentional way of doing business (laughs) that, that unless your last, unless your last name is a Titus or Dwyer or some of those families that are two and three generations deep into the business model, you you know, franchising isn't something that you go to school with an aspiration to become a franchise executive. It doesn't work that way. 
So you don't find franchising, it finds you. And each week I ask my guests to tell us what that looked like. When did that happen for you? What were you doing that got you connected in the world of franchising? And we begin the conversation that way every single week. Wow. And then we just walk up the, the road from that point of entry, that inflection point to some of the milestones on the path and on the journey. And we find ourselves about halfway through a 30-minute interview, usually right about there. We take a break and come back and talk about the current day. And we talk about what's going on in, in that person's world right now and learn about the brand or brands that they're engaged with. And all of these interviews, though, are only inviting uh, the only people I invite, whether they're franchise or suppliers or franchisees, is not as important to me as the fact that they've put the word sustainable in front of growth and sensible in front of franchising. And they're going to share nuggets about their journeys into sensible franchising. And each week the audience comes and expects that. And and it's a thrill. I mean, it keeps it keeps me relevant. Sure, it keeps me in front of a lot of people without having to jump airplanes to do it. I'm talking to executives every single week, 50 weeks a year. That's incredible. All right, well, so I'm going to flip the script on you. I want to hear about your journey. Why don't you share, because you're always asking people about their journey, how franchising found them. How did franchising find you? It found me in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, in 19... 19- 88. And I had been in radio for a number of years in broadcast, uh, did everything that you could do except own one and, you know, worked in stations, both in programming and promotion and sales. And my last job was in Fort Lauderdale. It was in sales on a news talk station on the AM dial and a sister classic rock station on the FM dial. And I was discovered by somebody who thought I was wasting my time in the fickle business of radio, which it is very fickle. It, um, you know, every 13 weeks, another ratings book comes out and there are knee jerk reactions to the, to the ratings. And so what was a, a punk station may now be a gospel station. Maybe 13 weeks later, be a country station for 13 weeks later, be a news talk and then becomes a punk country gospel news talk. And what are you doing, but spinning your wheels in that business. But I learned I learned how to manage relationships with ego-driven people in, in radio. And my focus was car dealers. I called on car dealers and helped them um, utilize radio as, as a vehicle to really drive people to their showrooms. And I did it with promotion. And there was some software that the Radio Advertising Bureau made available that enabled you to see how much they were paying for these full page or double trunk ads and Miami Herald and color. And I could see that if they're spending like 30, 40, 50 grand for a single insertion in the newspaper. I could take color out of that ad and save them a ton of money and use the money that would have paid for the color to buy commercials that I'd produce and put on six radio stations telling people to watch for my ad in the Miami Herald. And, and I'd still have some money left over to, to maybe be able to land the the Miami Dolphin cheerleaders or somebody on you know from a helicopter on the lot come to the promotion come get free coke you know we drove business mm-hmm. and did that through radio with ego driven people that were car dealers so I got recruited to ERA real estate by somebody who thought that I'd been wasting my time just doing what I do in radio 
we're going to teach you franchising where you can really make a difference in people's lives. And ERA wanted me to be, to take independent real estate brokers who, like car dealers, are some of the most egocentric people in the world and be able to have conversations with them about how you think you're the biggest and the mightiest in the market. But if you don't buy this franchise, someone else will, and mm-hmm. you're going to be competing with the biggest and mightiest in the market. And so it was that kind of a fear of loss was the motivator kind of mentality. But I was good at that. And I'd never lived in a house, Frank. I grew up in an apartment in Brooklyn, New York. I mean, I never was a homebody, but I took to real estate and I took to the people in real estate and I learned how to sell those franchises. And I made me and ERA and then Prudential and others a lot of money um, converting independent brokers to the ERA brand. And that's where I began in franchising. And then from there, moved through to the more... um, mainstream you know i got into food with blimpy subs and salads and i became a partner in wing zone which led to the national buffalo wing hall of flame becoming a part of my life i got into ice cream with maggie moose i got into the internet and and i was working with a company that is still at the front of its game today called wsi and so i've been around the world of franchising i've been around frank fumi and i9 sports Mm -hmm. i did consulting for you many years ago um, what I've learned is how to change shirts gracefully, but collect people along the way. <laughs> and that's what I've, that's been my cornerstone. That's great. You have, you have, what is changing? What do you see as a big shift in franchising today that maybe is different oh. from 10 years, maybe five years ago? Like what, what, what yeah. do you see is this? Because there's several shifts, are there not? Oh, there, there are some, I can, yeah, there are some Gargantuan. more than shifts. Yeah. There are tremors. And I mean, the industry has moved to uh, being about a single founder of a single brand, like a Frank Fumi to that single brand now being part of a portfolio of companies underneath another banner in private equity and even portfolio companies within brands. So home service brands, marrying up with one another and becoming multi-branded concepts that are cross-promoting and touching people six ways instead of just one. It's crazy. So if you have a, yeah, home services businesses, like look at Neighborly and what they've done, you know, you just take six or seven different ways that you can serve a consumer at their home. And you've got that customer not once now, but six or seven more times. You can do their roof, you can do their flooring you can do their backyards you can and literally you scale that to a back office that works across all those brands and so now you don't have four or five or six different sets of attorneys and marketing people and franchise development people you've got one team in the back of the house driving all of the disciplines that are needed to drive the front of the house across those brands so the economies of scale become really different than they used to be when it was just frank fumey with a good idea that he grew into a company that made a lot of sense singularly, but under an umbrella of companies now or brands now that are held by a company like Rourke. I mean, it's, there's no end to where it's going. It's becoming a lot bigger a business. It's no longer a cottage industry. It's become a really big business. In a very short time too. I remember I can go back five, maybe six years ago when we were going to do our initial transaction. I'll never forget that, how what I was told by the investment bankers 
back about six years ago, seven, I'm sorry, seven years ago is, you know, these PE guys, they look for you to be about 5 million EBITDA before you get anybody's attention. And I just recently talked with a franchisor who said to me, Hey, I'm part of part of a portfolio. And I knew, but at the same th- same time, though, Stan, he just told me he was brand new. And I said, how, I'm sorry, how many units do you have? And he says, we have one franchise. I said, you have one franchise unit and you're part of a portfolio? He says, yeah, we just got bought out as a home service franchise. And that baffles me because here, here it was only seven years ago that there was like milestones. You know, you got to be like 5 million EBITDA before you get somebody's attention. Then it went down to 3 million, then 2 million. And now we've got somebody who I talked to that has literally one franchise unit and he's already, you know, sucked into this umbrella. But I, I get it. It makes sense to me to have this rolled up and the centralized services. What do you, what are your thoughts though on long-term franchising? Is this a good thing, bad thing? How do you think this is going to shake out? Well, I think it's going to take, like anything else, that the strong survive. I think it's going to become more and more difficult for a founder of an emerging brand that doesn't have the strength or the buying power of a competitor that's under an umbrella that's got all the horsepower. Um, It's going to be a lot harder for that franchise to successfully compete and attract franchisees when another brand in the same segment is under that umbrella and has super supersonic speed behind them. They've got technology. They've got the, the investment for professional management behind them that the independent doesn't simply have a chance to compete against. So if I'm out in the marketplace and I'm looking for something that's in your, in your domain, say something like youth sports and the Frank Fumi I-9 sports of the years gone by, got it to the place where it became attractive to a private equity company. But if it were me as a prospective franchisee looking today to become a franchisee of somebody who was doing it your way in today's world versus doing it with the power of a a private equity firm behind it, I'm going to see two very different things. And one of them is going to be a lot more attractive to me. And obviously we know why. Mm, True. I agree. I think this is, yeah, long-term, it's definitely going to make it um, definitely survival of the fittest for sure, right? I think that the rolled up, um, the rolled up of services is a great thing because let's face it, as a founder of a startup, you are, you can only afford what you can afford in, in talent. So I think that's going to help. I'm also curious though, do you think that this new trend and and maybe it's just really the 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 new way we're going moving forward do you think that we're going to make an impact on that statistic that 84 percent of all franchisors never get to 100 units do you think that's gonna have a huge without a without a doubt there are two reasons i say that one is because of the resources that are available to the individuals who make investments now are making investments into businesses that have the management of professional management, professional tools, it should make for more successful outcomes and more successful outcomes will lead to fewer failures, which scare people away from becoming a franchisee. So that should be very helpful. Things like Zor Forum uh, to kind of put a shameless plug in place here, but Zor Forum was designed for the emerging franchisor as well to enable them to 
be part of a peer group like a Vistage or an EO or a YPO and have a group of six or seven others at part as part of a group that now have each other to bounce thoughts and ideas and and notions off of under the direction and guidance of a moderator who is a seasoned franchise professional guiding that group. Loneliest people in the world, Frank, I know you used to be one of them. I An was. emerging franchisor is the loneliest person on the planet, doesn't know what he doesn't know and doesn't know where to go to find out more about it. And so it doesn't take a couple, one or two bumps to sometimes uh, hit a blind spot that could take you down because it's not difficult to get deep, deep into trouble if you're a franchisor without the guidance that you need to see your way through those blind spots. Mm -hmm. And so we do that with, with Zorforum and hopefully we save some souls, help people become better franchisors and do so with less speed bumps right. <laughs> along the way. <laughs> I think Zorforum is, is a great vehicle that hopefully is going to impact that number and also impact the other statistic that I know has been troublesome for years and that is the number of franchisors hasn't rel hasn't changed relatively speaking, right? I mean, there's give or take. I know we can argue about the total numbers about four thousand franchise brands, and there's three to four hundred new franchisors that come on every year, and then three or four hundred. There's three come or four hundred to go away. Yeah, yeah, why, there's why, three or four hundred more to go. Why do so many of those go away? What are the what do you think are the top three reasons why those franchisors stop franchising? Because there aren't really many answers to that question. There's probably two or three. Mm. One is they shouldn't have become a franchisor in the first place. They were ill-prepared. You know, the argument can be made that what's happened in the Z side of the business is now happening on the Zor side. It, it's gotten too easy to become a franchisee. And a lot of companies that, that and no hit on the FSOs, but They'll sell franchises for you, and an emerging brand gets himself tied in with an FSO that's going to get that franchisor ahead of his skis. They'll sell, 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 and now he's got 18 or 20 units to open, and he doesn't have the staff to do it, and he doesn't have the, the horsepower to do it. So th that leads to why the model that is changing and getting into the portfolio of companies is such a good idea, because you now have better resources. But- franchisors that shouldn't have become franchisors but it was easy enough it was cheap enough and and all they think is wow now money is going to start coming in the mail now i'm going to get royalties from all these people and that it's kind of like going to buy a car if you don't have the left and the right side of your brain in sync you shouldn't be buying that vehicle you shouldn't just be smelling that new leather and going oh yeah this is god i love this Think about the insurance differences that you're going to be having to pay now. Think about the monthly payment, and can you afford that? Nope. One side of my brain is screaming yes, and I'm not listening to the other. Well, in franchising, it's not very different than that. You should be grounded. You know, in, if you're buying a franchise, you should consider it like having another kid. Are you, are you signing up for that? You're not replacing a nine-to-five job. You know, you've got, you've got a 10-year agreement here. And, and it's not Monday to Friday and you're off on weekends. So think of it like having a child. And if you're an emerging franchisor and you're thinking that you can just collect checks, think about what you're doing. You're impacting the lives of those people who you're talking with. And for the good of they and the Zors both, it's think about having another kid is what you're doing here. 
And the, the hope is, is that for the first few years, you're going to nurture your business and take care of it and do everything that you do as a parent with a newborn. And then as it matures, maybe you can let go a little bit and enjoy the business a little more with a lot less management. And then ultimately hope that the day comes that that business is now going to take care of you, just like you want your kids to grow up and take care of you. That's kind of a life cycle. It's very, very similar. And it doesn't always work, but it, you know, that's, that, that's the mentality that one should go into the business model with, whether it's Z or Zor. It's a long-term man. You're playing and you're, you're running a marathon. You're not in a sprint. Right. I think a lot of franchisors make that mistake going in as they think the money is going to roll in and they forget that what it took them to even start their business, that they had to go through a learning curve. They went through a grind. When you become a franchisor, you're going to go through a grind all over again because you don't even know what you don't know. And once you start figuring it out and your brand starts growing, back to what you said earlier about lonely, the I found personally, personally speaking, the bigger my company got, the lonelier I got. The lonelier I got was because I couldn't share with everybody what was going on in my head because I would scare people to death because it was going to affect their job one way or the other, right? So strategically, I had a lot going on in my head. So I found myself becoming more and more isolated, right? And it, mm -hmm. it became lonely. And I think that um, you have to a have other folks to speak to and going back to what you mentioned about Zor Forum, I think that's an an awesome vehicle that as a franchise leader that there is a there is a way now that you get to talk to people about their franchise experience in a vistage EO, YPO kind of way in that mastermind group. But also just stand think about it. Look at the impact it makes on the franchisees. If the franchisor can clear his or her head and understand and learn from fellows oars on what they went through you're going to be so much better off you're going to bring in the right franchisees you're going to bring the That's right, right. you're going to bring in the right kind of talent you're going to have the right kind of systems um okay stan if you were going to start a franchise tomorrow what would you think are some of the most important elements that you would look for in building your company i would make certain first and foremost that i'm well capitalized because to make a small fortune in franchising, you probably should start with a large one. And it's never and large have, enough, right? Have the money, have the resources. You have to have the culture too. You have to have the mentality of what it is you're doing. You've been an operator for years, probably operating, improving your concept as an operator. And scaling your business and operating your business are completely different skills, completely different roles to be played and so if you're planning to continue operating the company operation yet it's a full-time job and now you're adding a second full-time job because now you, you're scaling the business that you're operating well where are those extra 40 hours a week coming from and so you have to have people around you you've got to have good people around you you've got to have more than yourself or you're not ready to franchise yet those to me are some of the key things, having the 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 money involved, the, the economies of scale are, are, are kind of some of what you mean from a single location. If you had one and then you had a second and then a third, the economies of scale work for you when you run a Valpac or a coupon and a money mail or something. And now you've got three addresses that you're paying for in one piece of paper instead of just one. But when you grow past that three, then you're not any longer an operator. Now you're a manager. 
you've got to have managers. You've got to be able to do work with people and build teams and have people looking up to you as the leader. It's completely different than the role of the operator. And so you have to have the mindset. You have to go in understanding that there's a cycle and it's going to be change and you're going to, your roles need to change. You can't get past two or three units and do what you used to do because it's not your dad's whole Buick. <laughs> you got to change. <laughs> you got to change and grow into the role that you're assuming. And so be pre- being prepared for all of that is really critical. It's not just that you have a great concept and it has great unit level economics. It's getting to scale is going to require professional management. It's going to require professional people that are as good at scaling as you were in operating the business that's proven to be worthy of, of becoming a franchise. So people and, and money um, and the right people, you know, having leadership and and the finances to 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 go and grow and to the point you made about the single unit that private equity was interested in you're right you know a few years ago private equity didn't want to talk to anything under five mil the due diligence that they had to do for anything less wasn't you know juice wasn't worth the squeeze right but in today's world where that single unit of that brand may fill a niche that's important to the franchise portfolio company to have as part of their recipe. And so they can bring that company in and keep the founder in place, focused on growing and being the face of the company because they're not needing him any longer to do the back end, to do the things that they're already in place with resources and tools already in place. And so they can get it where it's going and it, it makes more sense to them to have that as part of the recipe, no matter whether there's one unit or 50. Mm. They're not counting on the cash flow. They're they're counting on the puzzle piece that that fills. So could I argue that if we're seeing this trend now of private equity taking on these brands at a much earlier stage, could you argue that innovation and uniqueness of the individual brand is not as important because is this a big boy are we playing with the big boys now where they're just going to throw money and people and being unique or different as your concept isn't as important as being part of a home services umbrella i still think that the basic tenets that make for successful franchises are very much needed because you still have to have your systems you still have to have your processes you still have to have your workflow you have to have your uh how many steps from the make line to the to the you know to the delivery window you have to have all that mapped out and you can't just buy the front of the house because it fills the hole you may take the front of the house you you may take that brand with a single unit and if it was constructed and contemplated correctly and has the ability to throttle up and do it because they did say the, the e-myth way then let it go it's let it rock and roll and you know let it let it grow that same single unit that didn't have any of those systems or processes contemplated much less in place and you're going to take that with or without a point you're just going to crash and burn it quicker with the private equities infusion if they bought a turkey you can't put lipstick on a pig and make it look and work better just because you want it to fill a hole. It's got to be real. And so the innovation is still necessary. The, the, the birthing of the concept for scale is still necessary. 
Cole. That's what I was getting at. You know, I'm I'm hoping that it doesn't doesn't this doesn't dismiss the integrity that's needed in franchising. That you still at the end of the day have a solid brand that is right. run by a solid founder who has a vision, and that PE is not taking away the lifeblood of these franchise concepts that the founder had a vision behind it and a dream and a purpose and great people that are part of the team. And they may not fit the role moving forward. Cause we know that I, gosh, I could speak from experience. Unfortunately, I had some really, really good people that worked for me early on, but they weren't the right people to take the organization to the next level. And it hurts, you know, because these people become your friends. And I would imagine mm -hmm. it, it's gotta be even more troubling if you're a founder that does become part of a portfolio where you know that these people are going to some people are going to be pushed out right because of centralized services or they weren't part of the right fit it's just a function of the maturity the maturation of the brand yeah um, founders founders tend to uh, at some point they ring the bell when it comes to the peter principle which you know all people strive to reach their own level of incompetency. And at some point, you know, when you signed up to do what you did and you had the passion, that passion is the other piece that I think is really critical for a founder of any brand to have second to money passion. You got to bring your heart and soul into that brand and, and live, breathe life into it every day. But at some point as it grows, it's going to grow past your core competencies. And that's where it's time to say, I have to change my role. I can still be the face of the company, but I can't be the person who's going to run the accounting department and the marketing department and, and be um, the go-to guy for a company now that's in the multi-millions of dollars and operating at a much different level than it ever needed to run when I was running everything myself as, as a sole operator. So... It's, it's maturity mm -hmm. and it's hard because founders typically are very passionate people and they're very, very protective of the brand. It's like the father of the bride, you know, you're, you're giving away your kid. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's a hard thing for many founders to live through. I, I know I watched you live through it. It's tough, but I, you know what I learned back in maybe around 2008, I learned that if you really love your company, you give it what it needs and sometimes that means it needs something more than you because it's not about right. you. The, I'm sorry, but the sorry founders that are on this pod, listen to this podcast. Sorry. If you really love the company, you have to give it what it needs. And it was never, the company was never about you. And I think that's what people, where they get in their own way. Um, I haven't been doing this podcast very long, but I would probably, I guess probably 80% of the episodes that I've recorded so far, I have probably have said this, that hiring for your weakness is the number one thing. It's like almost like a mantra that I've said on so many of these episodes. It is. It is an issue where we get in our own way and we need to hire the people who are, uh, we need to hire for our weakness. And hiring that COO or hiring that president is a huge leap a lot, a lot for these founders because they're swallowing their pride, right? And they're saying, Absolutely. I'm, I'm not it anymore. How early is too early in Europe or when is the right time when that founder uh, often makes that leap and says it's time to hire a COO or president? I, I don't know that there is a, a time that you can linear put into a linear fashion. I think the time is 
as you're starting to feel the pinch and feel the need for professional services, um, you're growing out of things that you started with. That's another thing I would strongly recommend that emerging franchisors, when you bring on resources, like in my world at FRM with CRM, you know, don't start with something that you're going to grow out of. Start with something that has the ability for you to grow into it. And you don't have to swallow the whole elephant all at one time, but start solving for whatever the problem is at that stage of growth that you're in. And and do it with something that will not require you to, to wreck and rebuild, you know, in two or three years because you've grown out of it, the tool that you bought because it was less money or it cost less. Think about constructing a building. If you don't, if you're building a skyscraper, you don't want to be up eight stories and then find out that there's been a design flaw and now we have to fix it before we can go up, but we also have to go back down. You don't want to have to do that. Don't be that guy. Start with a tool that you don't need. It's more advanced than you currently need. And you start with it and, and start with it in a fractional fashion that you can then add on, add on as you're growing. You're, your needs are going to be evident, whether it's in operations, it's in finance, it's in royalty management, it's in supporting your field reps, whatever it is, have a tool that will enable you to add those modules to, to the overall platform so that you're not getting eight stories up and having to wreck and rebuild. Right. Tell us a little bit about FRM Solutions. FRM is a, is a really dynamic. In fact, it's so dynamic that it's built in dynamic CRM. It's Microsoft's dynamic CRM, which is then further customized and built completely with workflows and fields that make sense to you if you're a franchisor and make no sense to you if you're not. <laughs> so it's out of the box, right out of the box. It's about 75 or 80% of the way there for those things that are relevant to managing relationships with prospective franchisees, with existing franchisees, with legal and compliance, with learning how to become a franchisee for a prospect. It's all there built and baked into an out of the box solution that would have taken years more for any individual to try to contemplate and create. And that's the thing you don't want to do. You don't want to find yourself spending time trying to build something that's already there and available to you that out of the box can provide 75 or 80% of the need. And then you customize and further it, it you know, you customize and you further configure it together with us as your server or a friend connect or whoever it is that you, you purchase the CRM product from. But too many people want to create too many things, you know, we know that franchisees are not ideally coming from the entrepreneurial world. Better to suggest that somebody who's entrepreneurially spirited and wants to mitigate risk by having platforms around them and services that are proven, but they still want to be for, in business for themselves. Well, franchisors are entrepreneurs, and too many times they just want to hold the clay and mold the clay and do everything their way and they don't get out of their own way soon enough. And there again, it's not a timeline issue, Frank. It's, you can't say when it happens. It's more the things that do happen. And and it's if for you, it may have been uh, a core competency, may have been in sales, and for some other founder, maybe it's finance, maybe for another one, it's ops. 
So to the point you made about hiring for your weakness, you do the things that you can do as well as they can be done and get others to do that same level of competency in the things that you're not so good at. And the time to do that is not the same at every brand. It's when you hit that wall, you'll know it. And when you start hitting that wall, act on it. Don't pretend it isn't happening. Mm, that's great. Yeah. And there are things that you can you can mold the clay and feel the clay and touch the clay on some things and other things you have to just, you know, buy off the shelf or bring in new voices that have different skill sets. And I think that's that's an issue for a lot of people, especially as a founder, but you have to realize that um, there's things that you can, you have to know things that you can, that are in your control and things that are out of your control and where to use other, other resources and not try to, um, maintain control over everything, which leads me to the That's next, fine. next topic, which I want to talk to you about FAC about franchise advisory councils, because that to me was one of those critical points in my career where I realized that I needed to be more collaborative and most franchisors, we start out where we don't have, we don't listen to the franchisees when you start out, right? You're teaching and then you say, okay, I need an FAC. So I create an advisory council where I appoint people because it's early on. And then we have to make that shift where we start having voting, right? Where we allow franchisees to vote on that advisory council. Is that something, tell me what your thoughts are on when you see those advisory councils really come into play. When is it? When is it the right timing for a franchisor to be more collaborative? Because when you're first starting, it's hard to be collaborative, right? You're, you're, it's kind of one-way teaching. You know, I, I think that advisory councils are good things to form when you've got a, a nucleus of people that are around you that you can't. There's a dichotomy, I guess, in trying to get advice from the people who bought to be advised they, you know, they kind of scratch their head going, well, I bought a franchise so that you could tell me. But asking for input from day one is not a bad thing. Always being open-minded about taking input from a franchisee is always a smart thing to do. But to have that collaborative, collaborative mentality, um, but not necessarily formalized yet in, into a council. Then when I think you are at a point where you can start to quartile people and you can see who are your top producers and who are the bottom. When you can start getting to a place where you can identify who your strongest achievers are, those are the people that you want to put into a, a leadership role as members of your advisory council. And you want people from the quartile below to be invited in as well because they're going to aspire to be more like those people on the top. And then if you do that, then you want to bring people in from the second tier down from the bottom and have them see a path toward playing as a team and playing well together and helping to aspire to being put into leadership. And if you put each of those members or categories into different responsibilities that are relevant to the stage that they're in, they can still be leadership in the second tier and and then grow into the third or the second or the fourth or whatever, whichever one you count it. But, but you give people a path. And if you're doing that and you're doing that responsibly, you know, you probably have enough franchisees, six, eight, 10, maybe 12. I don't know. I don't know that the number matters so much as that you can 
start identifying the weepers from the keepers or the the ones who want everything and are needy or the ones who want everything and you've given them others that they can learn from and take advice from from within the group it's going to make a the life of the emerging zor much easier too when you can start helping franchisors learn from each other not every question needs to be answered by you as the founder it takes a burden off of you and it starts getting them interconnecting with each other which is always a good thing if you're doing it right mm-hmm. i purposely mentioned that i've raised that question because i think that is at the heart of the matter of how you make that transition from being an emerging franchisor to a mature franchisor because the emerging franchisor sometimes it's so hard to keep your head above water sometimes you you know you're you're just trying to keep the lights on by selling franchises and your franchisees you just don't have enough critical mass but you do have to make that transition where look i've really got to be more collaborative and listening to my franchise owners at the different revenue levels like you said i think it's great when you have a council that's not made up of just the people who are at the top you have to have that range because the guys that are starting out they need to have a voice of here's what here's how life really looks as I started my franchise. Here's what we look like. Here's the challenges we face. Because a, a guy or girl is facing a different challenge at starting out, of course, and somebody's been around for five years and you know do, doing north of a million in revenue. That's they're not going to relate to one another. Yeah, somebody. That's right. Somebody who's at the bottom tier, they can look at somebody who's a tier above them and they can say, "I can see that. I can. I can do that. I can get there." But if you have only the top guy who's been around for a few years, it's harder to connect those dots. So you need to have incremental opportunities for bites of the apple to be beneficial at each step along the way. And, you know, we're talking a lot about emerging franchisors today, Frank. There's so many different people with different definitions of what constitutes being an emerging franchisor. And I'll share my definition if you'd like, because it's not based on how many how many units and it's, it's not based on how many dollars. It's based on royalty self-sufficiency. The day that you don't need to sell another deal to make your payroll and to pay your bills is the day you've arrived. You are no longer an emerging franchisor. You are a franchisor. Royalty self-sufficiency without the pressure of another franchise. I can pass on that deal that I didn't really feel good about this month and not worry about the lights going off or not being able to make my payroll. That's when you're no longer emerging, but you are now maturing. I absolutely love that. And speaking from personal experience, it was a game changer. When you are self-sufficient on royalties and you have enough critical mass, I totally agree with you that it's not based on number because, yeah, you could sell 15, 20, 30, even 40 franchises in your first year, but you're not living off of royalties. You are still, you know, you're still up and coming. You're emerging, but... To take that, to be able to make that transition, that way you can survive off of royalties. Oh my gosh! It was for us. It fortunately happened before the Great Recession. We were in a lot of trouble our first two years. We blew through a ton of money. Our burn rate was way too high, and by two thousand five, we weren't. We were pretty close to going out of business. And we took massive action. We turned things around over two thousand six, two thousand seven, and we sold our. We awarded our 100th franchise location in September of 2007, I remember. And of course, you know, we had the big cele- celebration. We have our 100th franchise location. Most people don't get that far. And it was, you know, it felt great. 
but we were not self-sufficient either at that point either. Even at our 100 franchise locations, we, it got us into like two, early 2008 when we turned that corner. And thank goodness it did because, as we all know, you know, once the Great Recession hit, it was a hell of a time to try to sell a franchise to keep the lights on. Mm-hmm. And the story would have ended a whole lot differently. I don't think you and I would be on this uh, podcast together. My story would have ended dramatically different had we not taken those necessary steps early on. Um, but being royalty self-sufficient is... Uh, at the heart of the matter is really when you've arrived. I agree. Yeah, see that we found something we could agree on. <laughs> what's been? <laughs> what I think we agree on a lot of things. What's been your biggest surprise in franchising? I think the biggest surprise is how, as an industry, which we're not really. It's, I should take that back. We're a way of doing business. Um, we're not an industry per se. We are a collective of industries that are doing business and going to market through the distribution advantages that are inherent in franchising. I think that there's a level of sophistication that has come out of COVID that has accelerated rapidly. I don't think it's anything that wasn't already coming, but somebody hit the gas really hard when we came out of COVID. The the things and the lessons learned I've been, I think, the quickening. I call it a quickening. Things are moving at a different pace. There's there's a faster and more accelerated pace. And I believe that some of the the reasons for that are associated with the private equity, associated with the money that's available to drive the technology that has rapidly evolved. And it's changed the game. You know, restaurants that used to be looking for larger dining rooms or looking for smaller dining rooms now because more and more food's being eaten off premise and they have to alter the kitchen to have an accommodation for food going out the window versus food going out to the dining room. You can't be stepping over each other and getting in each other's way. So the business going out the window used to be incidental. Now it's incremental and it's largely incremental. I can look at concepts like Wingstop that through COVID, had double-digit comp sales positive while others in business were, were dying on the vine. They didn't have as huge an adjustment to make because they were built for off-premise pretty much in the first place. So a lot of things that others had to start catching up on and figuring out how to get parking places reserved for cars that are coming to pick up food instead of for the dining room, just things that, that had to change. And, and the change came quickly. You couldn't think about this. You had to be doing it on your feet. And literally, that quickening hasn't slowed down. And I don't think it's going to. I think that we're going to see more and more sophistication in the mom and pop world that was now that it's more corporate and corporate run and money managed through private equity and even publicly held. You know, I'm not a big fan of public companies and franchising, but I see a lot of them getting it done but it, i just feel like you can't serve two masters in, in in my mind your fiduciary and primary responsibility as a franchisor is to your franchisees but if your franchise is publicly held there's a conflict there in my mind because you've got shareholder responsibility which doesn't always align with stakeholder responsibility and who do you who do you look to first yeah so i just think that there's a tug of war in public companies, but there are a lot of them. And there are some that, that 
say they manage it well, that if it's not good for my franchisees, then it's not good for my shareholders either. Mm-hmm. So, but even then, so what if that same question were raised, but instead of saying, if it's not good for my franchisees, it's not good for my shareholders. It's not good for my shareholders. It's not good for my franchisees. Well, which one do you look to first? If you had a choice to make, where would you make it? How would you do it? Yeah. There's a conflict. There's a conflict there that you can't, you know, you, you hope you never have to resolve for that, but, but it's a burning question as to how you do, because you've got two levels of responsibility and they're both primary. Mm-hmm. And doing what's right is more important, more important than doing what's popular. I, I could say that I fortunately was not in that situation where I had to answer to stakeholders in private equity. And maybe this is also a lesson for founders that are listening to this, that you have a couple of paths to take. You don't necessarily have to be that founder that becomes part of a platform portfolio under an umbrella because you are going to have, there are great advantages to it, but you're also going to have to start listening to somebody to your stakeholders and there's going to be rules to follow and covenants and if you're really a trailblazer uh maybe it's to go the other way and to you know to stay the course grow it on your own and maybe create your own umbrella of companies your own portfolio i think too that the same way as you as a franchisor have decisions to make about who you invite to your to your brand as a franchisee think the same way when you're looking at private equity because they're not all built the same oh that's great. some private equity yeah some private equity companies are built like focus brands is is crazy they built to hold and others are building for five-year flips and they have different agendas and so just like different people coming to look at your franchise as an operator or as a franchisee sometimes have different agendas and you have to you know you have to flesh that out and make sure that you've got a good cultural fit with unit level um, operators that are going to blend with those that came before them and fit with those that are yet to come. But think of it that way too, when you're considering private equity and interview four, uh, four or five or more, because it's, you're going to see that there's a cultural difference and the agendas don't always align. Totally. And you, it's not about the maximum money. It's also about the culture and fit. And what is your role going to be moving forward? You know, are you leaving or are you staying on? My first transaction was with uh, LNC Partners. They're out of Reston, Virginia, and they were an incredibly great partner. Um, They realized the value in our team that we knew how to make the machine run and they were the money folks. And there was resources there where they helped us. They gave us some guidance, but they basically left us alone. And it was a great fit because they were involved just enough. And I know that there is some other PEs out there where they want to take you know control over it. And that's their right. Look, if they own it, they can do whatever they want with it. But I think the founder needs to decide if they're going to stick around or not. That's a, that's a very big decision yeah. that they need to make. I'd say I'd, I'd take a, a quote from another great author, Stephen Covey, and I'd say, begin with the end in mind. Yes. You know, know what you're wanting to accomplish before you set upon just chasing that next shiny thing that's waving a lot of money at you. (laughs) Definitely. If you were going to give advice to a brand new aspiring, an entrepreneur who's aspiring to franchise their business, this is a new world we're living in. What, uh, what words of wisdom would you give? 
careful what you wish for, you know, um, make sure that you know what you're getting into with your eyes open wide, not just, again, it's the balance of the left and the right side of the brain. Um, just understand what you're doing and why are you doing it? You know, what's your, what's your motivation for doing it this way? You can't answer someone's prayers until you know what they're praying for, whether it's a, as a franchisor, whether it's as a franchisee, just really digging deep into the way of getting into the business and franchising is challenging. It answers some opportunities that would otherwise not be available to you. Maybe you don't have the capitalization to go out and do it yourself and build company-owned stores, but thoroughly know what you're doing and and understand not just in the moment what it is you're doing, but the impact over time and the changes over time. Know what you're signing up for. It's not for everyone. And, you know, you get it, you gain a ton, but you give up freedom and you give up things that are not available to you if you're having to operate under the guidance of somebody whose money is in the game with you. I would also say that there's no way I'd be sitting here talking with you on this podcast or be in the situation that my family is in had we not franchised. It, it, was, it was an incredible journey for me, an incredible ride that I, I look forward to, the you know, this next chapter of helping these emerging franchisors and, and these up-and-coming entrepreneurs that are looking to franchise their concept and, and help support them in a new way. But, um, yeah, there's, there's pros and cons to franchising by all means, but um, if you can give up a little bit, there's a lot you get in return for sure. Amen. Cool. Yeah. So, Stan, here, if you could, let's plug a few things so people can find you. First off, if you're a franchisor, tell Zorform, how do they find out about Zorform? Simply go to Zorform.com and everything you can want to know about it and the benefit that it can bring to you is found there. And if you're interested in becoming a franchisee of Zorform, bring a life's worth of franchise experience. And maybe it's another feather in your quiver if you're a consultant or you're in the franchising space and not directly as a franchisee or a Zor, but um, serving franchising and and you're a pay it forward kind of a mentality you'd be certainly interested in checking out the opportunity that we provide as franchisees with us that's great and what about if i'm looking for a great crm tool tell us about frm solutions how can we find out easy enough frmsolutions.com and that'll get you started and you'll get a look at all the things that are advantages that are inherent in having a tool that you can grow into and last but not least, the podcast, Franchise Today. Everybody that's probably listening to this show has heard Franchise Today already, but where can they find Franchise Today? Um, I would send you to my other website, which is my personal franchising website, sensiblefranchising.com. And at sensiblefranchising.com, you'll find links to all the pieces and parts of those things that tie me together from the National Buffalo Wing Hall of Flame to my podcast to diversity and all the work that I've done as a consultant as well, all ties to that site. So you can find out everything you want to know outside of the Zorp Forum and, and FRM. You'll find the rest of the recipe right there. Stan, this was awesome. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. Uh, it was great catching up and look forward to seeing you at a franchise conference soon, man. Always a pleasure, Frank, and thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to do this with you. Thanks, Dan. All right, I'll see you soon. Thank you for tuning into the Emerging Franchise Brands Podcast. 
For additional insights, guest applications, and to stay connected, visit us at efbpodcast.com. The Emerging Franchise Brands Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of Emerging Franchise Brands, its host Frank Fumi, or Emerging Franchise Group, LLC. Any discussed franchise or investment opportunity requires thorough investigation, obtaining proper disclosure documents, and expert consultation before making any investment decisions. The podcast and its host do not offer professional advice or endorsements, and they hold no responsibility for actions, representations, accuracy, or consequential damages related to the podcast content.